0: welcome to mind body health and politics i'm your host dr richard lewis miller the mission of mind body health and politics is to enhance your mental and physical well-being and encourage community I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of us human beings are friendly, tribal animals, and when we live together in small enough groups where we know everyone by name or at least by face, we are cooperative and collaborative. And yes, we do have a very small percentage of us who are predators, avaricious, greedy, and dangerous. It's our job, the vast majority of friendly collaborators, to be on guard and to make certain that we prevail with love and kindness and not let the predators prevail. We cannot let the Hitlers, the Mussolinis, the the Vladimir Putins, or the Donald Trumps prevail in this world because they are dangerous to the vast majority of us. Today, we're going to have a great interview with Jerry Cantor, who's going to talk to us about his book, and here it is, Sane Asylums. He's going to tell us about the success of homeopathy before what he says, psychiatry lost its mind. But right before the interview, I want to make an editorial comment. The news is full of information about the passing of the Queen of England, sadly, and the new king, Charles III. And I have one message to Charles III. Charles, make a royal proclamation. Do away with all the nobility. Abdicate your throne. Let's get rid of this exclusionism once and for all. Let's get rid of this ridiculousity where kings somehow lead by divine right, and they're not subject to the rules that the rest of the world are subject to. They only listen to the voice of God. That's an antiquated system that went out hundreds of years ago, and it's time for it to cease once and for all. How many people are there in this world that make fun of the downtrodden and poor and say, oh, they live on the dole. But what is the king and the nobility doing but living up on the dole, living off the backs of the people, off the taxes, when they themselves are so noble that they just get to live in castles and live some kind of life that should have gone out of existence 100 years ago. So Charles, do the right thing, abdicate, do away with the nobility, and let us all be together once and for all a people integrated living on the planet. Thank you for listening, Charles. And now on to our interview. Jerry Cantor, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics.
1: Thank you so much. A pleasure to be here.
0: I think first, it's important that you really elaborate for our public on what homeopathic treatment of the mentally challenged really is. How does it differ from psychiatry, which, in your words, has lost its mind?
1: Yeah, it could not be uh, any more different. Um, we're not interested in suppressing symptoms. We're not interested in treating diagn- uh, diagnostic categories. Homeopaths treat uh, the underlying cause of uh, our, our whatever illness we have. It's very, very customized to the individual. Um, I call it spiritual forensics, quite frankly, Um, When we dig deeply into an individual's life and life history, we look for a key trauma. Uh, My my favorite question to ask when I do an interview is, what is your hot button? What situation is likely to get you upset? Um, And if I saw you really upset, what would I see specifically? It's a two-part question. Uh, Do you get irritable? Do you get drunk? Do you write a poem? Do you withdraw? Uh, Do you throw a tantrum? How we become uncomfortable has a lot to do with how we become sick. Um, so, homeopathy is inherently psych- uh, psychological, um, psychiatric in the sense that we do prescribe remedies for these situations. Um, this is the law of similars, which has uh, lost its familiarity in this country uh, through, you know, deliberately through uh, obfuscation uh, and these uh, the campaigns against homeopathy. The law of similars is a law of nature that we can cure what a substance causes. If you know what a substance produces in a random bunch of people, this is homeopathic research called approving. I would call it the law of inculcation because we can create psychiatric states, we can create physical states in people by having them take a certain substance at a low dosage over a period of time and having them keep journals. We find that we can create a certain state which has mental, emotional, physical characteristics, and that eventually gets entered into our materia medica so that when someone comes into the office of someone like myself, if I can identify what that state is, the dilute version of that substance, which can be a botanical, uh, a gas, a mineral compound, a venom from a snake or a spider, that would have a profound ability to alter that person's interior landscape, treat, the, treat their psychiatric issues, so to speak. Um, homeopathy capitalizes on the inherent um, irritability of individuals. It's a mini, 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 mini poisoning, just as acupuncture is a mini, 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 mini stabbing. And uh, it's just gentle enough to provoke a response that actually wants to happen in the person we're not meant to be stuck in depression we're not meant to be stuck in anxiety we're not meant to be stuck um, in, in, in fear um, but each of those categories that i just mentioned have specifics have, have, have a whole dimension of, of possibilities in individuals so the remedy that's correct, So you say
0: excuse me yeah. so you say you, you're not you don't suppress the symptoms you allow them so let me give you an example a patient comes to me he was found laying naked on a superhighway in a snowstorm in Ohio, and he was taken to a mental hospital, and then the mental hospital uh, brought me uh, on board. And he said he was laying there wait, waiting for God to, to take him. And as I talked to him, I discovered that he had various characters in his life that he talked to on a regular basis. He had a Mother Teresa character, he had a rabbi character, he had a teacher character, he talked to rocks, he talked to trees, and he was treated as if he was crazy. How might you handle a fellow like that?
1: Well, I've got lots of questions, first of all uh was he injured why was was this a true case
0: he was not injured he was found laying in the highway before he was injured and he was taken away by the police who took him to a mental hospital
1: yeah and uh what did he want was he complaining of anything
0: he was just he he no he wasn't complaining he wanted to talk to god uh he, he didn't want to wear clothes uh, he wanted to, he was talking to all these characters, but he didn't make real good contact with the people around him, but, but erratic, some contact, n- not no contact. Cause when I met him, he was able to have a somewhat of a conversation with me.
1: Yeah. You know, in my book, I talk about a community in Belgium called Giel, where they have a, um, well, what, what they do is they simply create foster care, allow mentally unbalanced people, troubled people to live in foster care situations, um, I have to have a clear sense of, of what uh, this person on, on his or her own subjective basis wants, what the problem is. He may simply need support. He may simply need to be allowed to to uh, come and go as he likes. Um, there's nothing inherently r- crazy about wanting to talk to God. We, we do it all the time when we pray. It's just maybe a matter of extremes. If he's having, if he's getting symptoms that pertain to this, if, his, uh, if, his, if this ish- problem is uh, affecting his life in some way, um, I might just find a way to support him and, and keep him going. I, as I, again, I don't have a sense of what the problem was. If he had endangered himself lying there in the snow, um, there, there are still more questions that I would be wanting to ask. I would say, well, we, are you cold? Why did you? What, what provo- uh, prompted you to go and do this at this time? Um, I w- would find, like to find out everything I could about this person, but the core question still is, does he want my help? What, 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 uh, what's going on here? What is, what is the problem? Um, because what, what, is, what is crazy is really uh, never really agreed upon. I have seven categories of it in, in my book. And I, at the end of it, I have a, what's called the compendium of Ill, madness perspectives to look at, at, at madness from every cultural and spiritual and medical point of view. And uh, when you see that, you don't have knee-jerk reactions about uh, whether people are crazy or not anymore it's 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 just simply not that's that that that, uh, that clear. So individual by individual, I, I'd like to know get to know this man and find out uh, what his issues are f- from his own standpoint.
0: well, what what I asked him to do uh, was to introduce me to these various people that he spoke to and to introduce me to the people who could talk out of rocks and who could talk out of trees. And I asked uh, him to allow me to have conversations with them, and I got to know them. Uh, through him over time. And uh, as a result of that, I finally, I said to him, you know, when Mother Teresa has visions, they consider her for a Nobel prize and you have visions, you're considered crazy. Maybe we ought to be thinking about your visions as a rare gift that you can make the most of rather than, than, than the least of. Is there anything frightening about the people that you talk to? And he said, no, except when they tell me to do things that other people don't want me to do. I said, give me an example. He said, well, lay naked in the superhighway. I was told to do that. I didn't do that on my own.
1: Okay. So, yeah, that is a problem. Um, That's a self-destructive act and uh, needs some excavation for sure. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So he he does have demons. I would take his case as I normally would. Uh, keep him safe, first of all. I, my question one question would be, what he would like help with. Apparently, you've given me that part of that answer. He doesn't want to be told to do dangerous things. Um, but uh, right, yeah, uh, I'll just say something else uh, from a homeopathic standpoint. Um, homeopaths are all animists. The idea of animism is that everything is alive; everything has a voice. Um, that's not just being literary. Uh, if I if I investigate what a particular rock or or a mineral uh, how how it can help somebody in the proving, in other words, when people healthy people ingest that substance for a period of time, what actually comes through is the consciousness of that of that of that substance. And it doesn't matter too much to homeopaths whether that substance derives from a plant. We think some of us do think and know that plants have a voice or or, or an animal or, or a spider or something. We actually can enter into the consciousness of that that creature or that organism. But uh, even rocks, uh, calcium carbonate, um, calcium, phos- phosphorus—they uh, they all have a kind of a voice, which comes out when people uh, uh, ingest them for a period of time, and their consciousness changes in accordance with that. So, uh, I guess homeopaths are all kind of crazy to begin with, uh, from for having that point of well, view. But... Uh,
0: uh, uh, well, well, I, I don't, I don't share that perspective. I, I don't think it's crazy to sh- to have a perspective that everything has a voice, because everything has living molecules in it. Yeah. Everything is made up of atoms and molecules, and to that extent they are a life force. Yeah. And and so a, a life force has a way of communicating. We know that ants communicate with each other, that bees communicate, and now we know, as I'm sure you know, Jerry, that trees talk to one another, yeah. and yeah. mushrooms talk to one another. So I, I wouldn't say that you all are, are, yeah, it's are in any of, way... Um,
1: yeah, it's just it's just a plain, very ordinary fact in homeopathy. Uh, the way the research is done, as I say, we get say ten people who have nothing in common but who are healthy, and they agree to keep their lives fairly stable, and they ingest the substance. This is and it's blinded because we don't tell them what it is. Let's say it's made from uh, uh, arbor vitae, the this, the substance that they're ingesting. Um, over a period of time, they they, they ingest this, and uh, then they forward their journals to the proving organizer. And we collate out all the symptoms that are common, and that substance, which is called Thuja as a homeopathic remedy, you know, it it it, it produces um, a very specific mindset in people, which is the voice of the voice of the plant. A feeling that I am split, that I am uh, there's a feeling of inauthenticity that comes out. A feeling my my self esteem is is not good. These are, this is all the voice of that particular plant. Um, in any case,
0: uh, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating for me to hear you talk about the voice of the plant, because I interviewed on this program uh, De, uh, uh, Stephen Beyer, uh, who wrote a book. Uh, he's an ethnobotanist, and he wrote a book called "Talking to the Plants." And a lot of people talk about the psychedelic ayahuasca as having a voice. That they actually talk to. I'm sure you're familiar with that.
1: I have taken ayahuasca myself. And uh, the interesting thing about that is I would not even put it in the category of psychedelics, as some people might, because it has a directive intelligence. Uh, yeah, they call it grandma. And uh, it's, there's, of course, in accordance with the ceremony and and the deep shamanic tradition coming out of Peru. Um you get a very specific kind of information just for yourself, which is also, which is in fact the voice of that very, very wise,
0: very ancient plant. So you think that there is psychotherapeutic potential with that? Do you think, can ayahuasca be used homeopathically, Jerry?
1: That's an interesting point. I do have it as a remedy. And as a remedy, it's not the same as what you go through, uh, through the ceremony. Not, not at all. Um, I'm still thinking about that. But uh, if I was going to use ayahuasca or something like that, which I do uh, clinically, I would want to be treated by a shaman, somebody who has extreme experience with this and, uh, you know, go through the ceremony. You wouldn't, you couldn't get me into a psychiatrist's office who's going to want to do that to me. Not, not in a million years. Um, Yeah, these are traditions which are very ancient, and those people know what they're doing, and they have a lot of supports in place for when you do
0: that. Now, might you comment on the use of the synthetic uh, psychedelics uh, homeopathically? For example, there is a movement on now in in this country and other countries as well uh, to do something called microdosing with LSD and with psilocybin. Is microdose in the same family with homeopathy?
1: Yeah, that's a very, very interesting question. Um, it's, a relate, it's related. I mean, we have, I could look up the, um, the Materia Medica of psilocybin, um, as, and when you give that as a remedy, the picture has to match like always, but it's very, very, it's much more dilute than the micro dosage. Uh, this whole topic of uh, now, you know, it's funny. This discussion takes us right, right to, to the time, time frame when I wrote Sane Asylums, because in those days, people did experiment with different potencies of, of every kind of sub- substance. Everything was up for discussion. Um, so, yeah, even conventional doctors, we call them allopaths, would have given, uh, had control over how much of, of mercury they would give or how much of a, of a belladonna they would give. They, so it's now we're kind of going to that same, it's that same area of discussion where there's, there are gray areas, the closest thing to that homeopathically would be what's called the mother tincture. The mother tincture of the plant is is dilute, but it not, has not been succussed and has not been diluted extensively. And every substance has a different effect depending on the amount that it's given. And every substance should be given in accordance, taking strong consideration of the state that the client is in. So if you give it in a low potency and the person has absolutely no problems, uh, you're going to prove the 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 uh that substance it will actually produce not not it will not it will not work in accordance with the law of similars but in accordance with the law of of uh the opposite <laughs> of inculcation so this a whole interesting area yeah psilocybin i i know a psychologist who is telling me that microdosing of psilocybin is very very powerful for anxiety um i've not investigated that but i think i suspect that she's right microdosing lsd uh i have no clue what what that would be like it's certainly uh, going to be very, very different from taking um, – well, that's actually I, – I guess I really couldn't speak about LSD very well. Um, that's a d- dangerous substance, and you'd have to have a lot of good supports with that. But I, I'm not – I cannot speak authoritatively about using that in different, in different, different amounts. But we're living Why in an interesting refer- time where these old questions are coming back up, coming up for discussion again.
0: Why are you referring to LSD as a dangerous substance, Jerry?
1: (laughs) Well, I'm going from my own experience. I had a horrible, horrible trip back in the 60s with it. Uh, Just just
0: horrendous. Um, uh... Well, I I would imagine (laughs) if you had a horrendous experience, it means one of several things. Either the place where you took it was not an appropriate place and there was too much external stimulation, or... You didn't have a proper guide who could help you through the horrendous in order to shine light on what came out as dark. You might have been alone or just with friends, or maybe you took it what's called recreationally, which can be dangerous.
1: Uh, Pretty much all of that is true. I got way too much stimulus. I was not with an appropriate person. But once it got out of hand, there was absolutely nothing that could be done to, to, uh, to, to normalize me. But I mean, my experience yes. is my experience and other people had have had wonderful experiences with it. Uh, I, I I will not go near that stuff myself, but I'm a homeopath and um, I'm certainly happy to entertain every possibility of, of care for people who are who are having met- mental problems.
0: Well, going forward. I look forward to staying in touch with you and hearing anything you might have to report about homeopathic doses of LSD, psilocybin, ayahuasca, or any of the other psychedelics, because it could be an important contribution to our our present science that is now uh, experiencing a renaissance.
1: Well, I'll tell you this though, Richard. Um, The materia medica we have, the remedies that we work with already. Yeah, they are tremendously powerful medicines and uh, uh in my practice I've had very little need to go into areas like that we have a few remedies like uh, um oh let's see um well we have quite a quite a few remedies that are pow- very powerful psychiatrically but we go by the matching game when when, when so- we pay very very close attention to what appears in our office what how the person in our chair across from us is reporting the issues of their life and what symptoms they have so it's a very very rich territory because uh the symptoms that we that we produce, there is an incredibly powerful mind body connection. You know, they are clues as to what's going on in the psyche of that person. So I, I, I routinely treat psychiatric conditions using just the existing remedies that we have on hand. They are very quite quite powerful. I don't have seen any I'm, I don't see any, any area in which I'm going to be going into prescribing uh, psychedelics. You know, not not anytime soon.
0: Let me ask you about another case of mine, um, a 34 year old woman. Uh, suffering from obsessive compulsive disorder uh, with a lot of anxiety, uh, who recently moved to, uh, to North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill. Um, she, when gets anxious and upset, uh, will do something that might look to the public like throwing a tantrum, start screaming and yelling in public. And when she's alone in her apartment, she's liable to do destructive things occasionally such as break a chair or break a window or throw things across the room. So yelling, screaming, and breaking things has been part of, uh, of her condition, which, of course, is not acceptable in our modern society. And um, how might you approach this, or do you need more information, which I'd be happy to give?
1: Yeah, much more information. I'd want to find out how this began, uh, what was her first experience of this, uh, then i once we, we, I get into the case, I might be asking some very peculiar questions that seem to have nothing to do with it for example there 's one remedy that could describe her where the person also is very powerfully affected by music um, uh, there's, that be That would be one possibility, but I want to know I really have to find out what is the trigger for this? Is it a fear? Is it rage? Um, what does it connect with? And I ask all kinds we have all kinds of tools to get to the bottom of this. I would ask fairly ingenuous questions such as, how was she famous in her family when she was a child? What stories were told about her? I might ask, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you in your entire life? Then I would ask about food cravings. I would ask about uh, her parents, what her her childhood was like, uh, what her occupation is. Uh, You come at the question from many, many angles. We never prescribe on the basis of of one, one or two symptoms. There are hundreds and hundreds of remedies that involve rage really are. So which one do I pick? I have to understand to my satisfaction uh, what her life is like at, at an existential level um, and what, what's the feeling that her energy is that, that it gives out. Some people are, are mineral types of people. In other words, they are drawn to analytic thinking. They tend to be scientists or engineers. Flower types of people, or plant people, are, have more sensitivities, um animal types of people who might need a snake remedy or an insect remedy they have uh, the relation, the their relations with people are very very charged so there's many ways of getting into the case and it takes the initial session takes an hour and a half before i can confidently come up with something but just because somebody yells and screams and breaks things, that's just the very, very tip of the iceberg. I have to find out much, much more about what this is about, what this is expressing in that person. And also the physical symptoms. If this person is prone to constipation as opposed to diarrhea, or if they have skin conditions, or if they have asthma, if they have uh, what, what peculiar symptoms that they have, very individual, unique symptoms that they have, those could be tremendous clues to what's going
0: on for me. And suppose the person says as this person said to me, I'm afraid that if I drive to your office, I'm going to get stuck in my car at, before I even drive to your office, and I could be stuck in the car for three hours. Doctor, do you have any suggestion that you might make as to how I can get unstuck? Because this thing, OCD, it gets me stuck in the car. for. Th- I could be three hours just trying to drive to your place.
1: Okay, so that would fit. That, there's a rubric that would suggest, describe that situation. I have to tr- translate that symptom into what's called the rubric. So she may feel like this core feeling of being trapped is a tremendous a problem for her, or she may feel that she's being suffocated. Um, this idea of being trapped can cause a tremendous amount of anxiety and suggests a whole set of, of remedies. But again, I have to keep going closer and closer, narrowing, narrow, you know, narrow the, narrow the, uh, the choice of the, the remedy tree until I get to exactly what fits her uh, on, on every level. But yeah, you're getting closer to her. If you get surprised she tells you she's stuck in she cannot stand being stuck in a car. and also, I would ask more questions. Is it matter that she's um is it the fact is is she claustrophobic or is she in a rush to get someplace and and feels like she can't move forward? Those are subtle differences, but they matter to me
0: she She's stuck in the car and she puts the key in and tries to turn it, but then pulls it out to see if she put it in properly. Then puts it in again, and she could do that like 150 times without turning the engine on, just checking to see if the key went in perfectly.
1: Ah, okay, that's a good symptom. That's a better symptom. I can't take your case, uh, Richard, but I'm telling you that that's a that's a that's a. Um, Definitely a nuance there that would matter a lot to me, that kind of perfectionism and that monomania that she's doing it over and over and over again. So her mind is, you know, really narrow on this point. Yeah, that matters
0: a lot. I'm a pragmatist. So what I did was I got in the car with her. I had her put the key in and turn on the engine and do it over and over again perfectly. And then I let her do it by herself with me standing outside the car. And then I had her do it with me in my office and her at her place. And that worked. But, of course, it got transferred to other behavior exactly, immediately. Exactly. We, just, we, yeah. just, we just managed to get over that yeah, particular yeah. piece. I'm surprised to hear you say that your initial session is an hour and a half. I thought you were going to say your initial session is about six hours or four to six hours because you do a very comprehensive amount of, uh, of early intake information. I can tell that.
1: Well, I have what I consider an algorithm. Uh, I've done this a long, long time. And I can I can get a lot just from looking at someone's face, how what their gestures, how they park their car when they come here, how they walk. There's a there's a tremendous amount of information that um, homeopathy is politically is not very politically correct. We 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 get information from absolutely everything. And then we, we, I guess we say we're in a position of making a judgment, but it's not about whether the person's worthwhile or not or anything like that. We just have to eventually come up with a remedy that matches their situation. And we have to take account of every peculiarity that's going on with them. And, and uh, in other contexts, that's looked at as profiling, but that's not what the point of this is. I just need to get to know somebody in a very, very specific kind of way. And sometimes, this, often, the, 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 well, the, the most peculiar, strangest, most unique symptoms that they bring out. Uh, that seem un- completely unrelated to why they think they're in my office can be enormous clues as to uh, what what's going on with them. And it's often what people don't want to tell you. It's often what people are ashamed of and uh, trying not to tell you that that, you know, is the richest vein of information. So we are detectives. Um, it's very, very... Interesting, gratifying kind of detective work. Um, but if you get, when you become experienced at doing this and you develop a, a, an effective algorithm, you can you can hold good go in get in there pretty good. An hour and a half is a magical amount of time for me to to get what I need to find out. I generally I can generally attest.
0: I, I find you to be uh, humbly self-effacing in saying that you gain this information from all sorts of things, because I would say we are constantly communicating in all kinds of ways, exactly as how you describe. I'm communicating with my face, my eyes, my nose, my fingers, my hands, my body, as well as my tone of voice and my words. And what you're saying is you have practiced over the years interpreting, understanding and receiving those communications rather than simply relying on the words. And I tip my hat to you for doing that.
1: That's just what homeopaths do. I mean, if I met you socially, um, I wouldn't be doing any of those things. Um, it's in my office when I do this, <laughs> I do this work that I, I assume kind of a different persona. And I could be seeing seeing a serial killer or, or a, a child molester or, or whatever. And I would be doing exactly the same thing. That person has put themselves in my hands, and my job is to find out why they're there um, and what has what has formed shaped them f- throughout their life, going way way back, and not in, into just a, their childhood, but perhaps through a family legacy. So homeopathy is amazing in that way. That we uh, we if, if someone brings me a small child, I will automatically take the case of their parents and of sometimes of the grandparents to find out what the strain is. What that's that's going through generations there that I need to work on.
0: In the late 19th century, there was a form of treatment for people who were profoundly challenged that was called moral treatment. Yeah. And you write about moral treatment in your book. Please explain to us what moral treatment is.
1: Well, you're actually referring to what's called, um, um, well, moral treatment. There's moral, tre- moral treatment, which is the standpoint of, 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 of mental hygiene which is what the nurses practiced, trying to get you to think straight. But uh, moral care was the philosophy that let's be nice to these people. I mean, treating them like beasts, beating them up, uh, uh, torturing them with water water tortures. um, These are not good people. These are all people who are troubled. So moral care was a movement that went through all of uh, mental health in the the 19th centuries. And that was a very good thing. Um, Treating people with respect, giving them uh, activities to do, doing what homeopaths do generally. But it it, it extended beyond homeopathies. The the mental hospitals of the the 1800s, they they exercised moral care. They even produced uh, baseball teams for the the inmates to watch. It was mainly kind of a very exalted kind of hand-holding let's be nice to folks you know they' they're, they're human beings it was it was very enlightened but still it unless they incorporated homeopathy in it they didn't make a whole lot of progress so what I did in this book was tell the story about these amazing homeopathic mental hospitals such as in Middletown New York that um, the history books have have whitewashed out of existence because homeopathy is something that's uh, pre- contains an inconvenient truth. The fact that homeopathic remedies are great and they're safer and more powerful than conventional medicines um, is something that's not a convenient thing for people uh, invested in pharmaceuticals to know or talk about. But... uh yeah, this has this story had to be told. The story about Mary Todd Lincoln, um, who was cured by homeopathy, and no one's told that story. Uh, you know, for her incurable madness, supposedly. Um, the fact that these asylums, which were self-sustaining farms and uh, just wonderful places, uh, you know, they had 47 buildings sometimes and he held two or th- three thousand patients, which is way too many, by the way, to do this kind of work. So they kind of dem- their demise can be attributed to the fact that uh, they were too successful. But they were there, and and when people fight homeopathy, they they do it on ideological grounds and scientific grounds, neither of which hold water, frankly. But for God's sake, don't attack the history. This is facts, you know. All I did was uncover uh, this amazing trove of information about these uh, unbelievable places uh, that have been, you know, mischaracterized and and censored the history of them. And I thought that was an important. Jerry, thing to do.
0: It, it's a very important thing you did, and that's why I have you on this program. Jerry, when I went to graduate school. I studied the Middletown experiment and I studied the moral treatment. But then when I first got I got my first job in a mental hospital uh, in 1961 at the Laconia State School for the Mentally Retarded and Emotionally Disturbed, and I was an MA level psychologist uh, in my early 20s and after having read about middleton and having read about moral treatment and seeing that this hospital that i was going to live at and work at was out in the country had a farm had had a had a dairy had vegetables growing i expected it was going to be one of those places and instead what i found were patients being wrapped up in sailcloth and sprayed with ice water I found patients being hit with pieces of soap wrapped in women's stockings to use to hit them on their backs and and, and on their bodies. I witnessed electroshock therapy with patients having such contortions as a result of the shock that it appeared as though they might break their bones, and I think some of them might have. And I witnessed prefrontal lobotomies. It, 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 It was like It was a madhouse, but it wasn't a madhouse because of the patients. It was a madhouse because of the way the patients were being treated. I talked to patients. I said, how is it to one patient? I said to him, how is it that so many of the patients, some of the patients call me daddy and you just call me by my first name? He said, oh, it's simple. The ones who are mentally retarded, they call everybody daddy. But the rest of us who they think are crazy, we know that you're not our daddy. My daddy lives in, in, uh, in Boston, Massachusetts. You're just a young psychologist who works here. I said, wow, you're talking very straight. What are you doing here? He says, well, they should have let me out 20 years ago, but I'm so good working on the farm. They haven't let me go. Jerry, what I want to ask you is, how did we move from moral treatment, if you defined it as kindness? as respect, as dignity, maybe is not as much therapy as you and I would like, but basically treating these people as decent human beings without castigating them and having them live in beautiful places in the country. How did we go from that to these snake pits?
1: Well, that's my chapter in the book on what I call concessions to the spirit of the times. Um, yeah, it all went very much downhill. and. Uh, it was the Flexner report that uh, trashed the curriculums of of homeopathic medical schools and Thompsonian medical schools. It was also the, the the success of the of the asylums, which took so many additional people in, and they became overcrowded, and the quality of care went down. and homeopaths were co-opted into, into the new grave new age of uh, world of pharmaceutical medicine. And then pretty much yeah, by the time you, you got there, uh, bit by bit, year by year, you had the same kind of abuses that were held in the 16th and 17th centuries. Yeah, it was, it's terrible. But there, the point is the, the time that I was writing about here, there was a heyday when it was actually pretty darn nice and all the stuff that I'm talking about happened. But yes, it devolved. It, it's a horrible story. Uh, where I grew up in uh, Queens, New York, there was a, a, a huge, notorious um, mental, mental hospital called Creedmoor, and the abuses there were horrible, in, 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 you know, that I, we all knew about it in my neighborhood. This is not the way homeopathy was practiced, um, but the pressures to uh, oh, replace homeopathy with pharmaceutical medicine and, you know, it was just enormous. And to some extent, the homeopaths finally themselves caved in. And uh, many places that had horrible abuses were remained homeopathic in name and nothing else. Um, so that's, that's also the story I tell here. I quote, the concessions to the spirit of the times. Things definitely happened that contributed to what you're talking about. Um, and it's, it's, that history has to be honestly explained and not, not dishonestly as, as, a, as a failure of homeopathy. That was not the case. Complicated history, but Jerry. it happened.
0: Jerry, I had an author on this program named Robert Whitaker, who wrote a book called Anatomy of an Epidemic.
1: I know him well, and Richard. That- I know him well. He he's a I read all his books, and he's a big contributor. He's a big source in this book. Um he's a great guy. Yeah, I've read those books, and uh he's actually written a blurb here for, for me. So we are very much on the same page. He documents all those abuses using the uh the exact data from the psychiatric and pharmaceutical industry, um, which is very, very impressive and completely damning. Um, Thomas Zaz also attacks psychiatry, but from an ideological standpoint, and he was a, a psychiatrist. But Bob Whitaker, yeah, he's got all his facts together. He's a tremendous resource, and you can't read his books without you know, hanging your head in shame for what has happened in this country. We have the worst mental care in the world based on the fact of our, what our drugs are doing. There was no, there would be no such thing as tardive dyskinesia, if, if not for our drugs. Anyway, Whitaker is great, and uh, people have to read his books, and uh, the facts stand for themselves.
0: And by the way, uh, Jerry Cantor just referenced Thomas Haz, and I would recommend you read his book, The Myth of Mental Illness, if you're interested in this topic. That would be a good place to start. Wouldn't you agree, Jerry? I would, yeah. So do you agree with Whitaker that the big pharma bringing us these SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, would you agree with him that they're doing, in many cases, much more harm than good?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. A big challenge to a homeopath like myself, if I have to treat depression, as uh, I have to detoxify people from these very substances. So we will make homeopathic remedies from those pharmaceuticals and uh, enable the, 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 the patient to uh, de- detox from them. And then they respond much more effectively to our homeopathics. But if we try to do both things at once, treat somebody homeopathically while they're on an SSRI, that's like trying to drive a car with one foot on the gas pedal and the other on the brake. They're completely opposite approaches. Um, In any case, when we do research, homeopathic research on these uh, so-called wonder drugs of psychiatry. Um, we get a picture of of, of, of a of a mind body uh, entity where the, the effects of the drugs are com- are genuinely toxic and we have to have to treat them as, as, if, as if person somebody was exposed to uh, a very virulent disease. Um, the the action, you know the the side effects are so powerful from these
0: things. It's not good medicine. It's an embarrassment. Jerry, when a person comes to you. And they're on some combination I don't know which combination, but a combination abilify, respidol, Luvox, Zoloft, uh, 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 any of the uh, Prozac, and you use the word detoxify." How, do, how do you, can you tell us how you go about detoxifying them?: Yeah, that's because the easy, one of mean, the th- in
1: terms of theory, it's, it's just it's very, very simple. <clears throat> you take that actual medicine. And you dilute it. You turn it into a homeopathic remedy many, many times. And the person has taking that uh, will go through a crisis that relates to the toxic effects of that substance. And by the way, we don't do it helter skelter. We would do it a systematic fashion. The the drugs that impact the endocrine system first are the first ones that we would use. And then we would go through drugs that impact, uh, you know, a certain sequence, the um, metabolic system, and then, you know, the nerves. There's a certain sequence to it so that we don't cause you know, insurmountable aggravations, but we have to do that. And I hate treating like that. I'd much rather treat somebody, you know, where they just have a very, I don't care how crazy they are. If they're not on anything, I don't have to detox them at the same time. It's much simpler. It's much easier. But yeah, we have to do that. It's very unfortunate. You know, I'm sitting in this room here, right? I got into this room going through that door. If I want to leave this room, I've got to go through that door again. That's the same thing with an addiction or or the toxic effects of a medication. You get to a certain place, right? Where, you know, you rely on it. And when you start to, to, uh, to try to wean yourself from it, you go into a crisis. You can't get back through that door again. So people need supports, homeopathic supports, um, or we call them tautopathic supports because it's, they're the, identical with it, the source of the toxicity in order to get through that door. I can't just treat them while they're on those drugs. I have to get them off those drugs. And I do it in a systematic and a gentle fashion. But my game plan then is to, is to do that to get traction for the condition so that I can I can make progress whereas in the old days when people were just on we're, were not on anything we could say I can cure you in, in two months we'd actually just aim directly for a cure
0: when you talk about detoxifying you use the word you don't want to cause insurmountable aggravation and what Whitaker talks about which you're quite aware of is that when people come off these, SSRIs and other psychoactive medications, they go through withdrawal, which is aggravating, of course. And he said the big problem is that when they go through the withdrawal, they think their original symptoms are coming back again. They don't realize it's not their symptoms coming back. It's that they're going through a withdrawal. But because they think their symptoms are coming back, they then take more of the medicine, and they get into a cycle. And you're aware of this.
1: Which is, uh, think about it economically. What a great economic model, huh? <laughs> it makes so much money. Uh, you couldn't, you you know, uh, you can't do better than that. Getting people to crave the thing that they that that, that makes them worse, and then wanting more of the same thing. It's terrible. But
0: uh, I, think, that, it's, that I think it's I think it's. I think it's called a perpetual annuity. <laughs> and, 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 and that's what makes the work, for example, of Roland Griffins at John Hopkins with psilocybin so very important because his research indicated that one administration of psilocybin in proper protocol relieved symptoms of depression an entire year later. So he has stated to the world through this research that you could take something once and get 365 days of of relief whereas with the uh, big pharma you have to take it for the entire 365 days they've got you hooked
1: yeah that's uh it's uh it's a very very disturbing disturbing thing um psychopharm medicine psychopharma toxic psychotoxic
0: treatment so uh, (laughs) psychotoxic treatment so tell me how is homeopathy doing as a profession in the united states
1: well, um, as a profession, I, I first of all, say people buy a lot of homeopathics over the counter, not knowing, having a single clue that what they are and how different they are from herbs or, or nutritional supplements. They don't know that homeopathics are actually drugs. They have that kind of status, whereas uh, nothing else does. They don't seem to know that uh, they operate according to the law of similars. Um, professionals like myself, we're kind of under the radar. I've been kick-ass busy for, for decades now. I mean, just constant, constantly busy. Uh, but I'm I'm under the radar, and the message is 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 still buried as far as the mainstream goes because of this incredible attack on homeopathy, the campaign that's been unrelenting. For example, uh, my I think my book is one of the very few that that are coming out with a from a, a mainstream publisher. There's a kibosh on homeopathy that's very effective. For example, the three major medical publishing houses from Europe that publish medical books of every kind, very respectable. Uh, Springer team and, and Elsevier have simply announced they're never going to publish a homeopathic book again just because the pressure on them is so great. So, getting this book out is is an enormous uh, big deal because it's the first, uh, it may be very, very, one of the very few homeopathic books, whether it's about history or about, about the clinical aspect of homeopathy, to come out. And so, there's quite an appetite for it. Um, but I think there are going to be a lot of people who are unhappy that this has happened because they've succeeded so well in suppressing knowledge about homeopathy and try, creating the false impression that it's fuddy-duddy, that it's, that it's beside the point, that its day has gone past. It's never been true. The law of similars is a law of nature. And that you cannot kill the law of nature any more than you can kill the reality of uh, acupuncture meridians just because you don't like them because they, the people having acupuncture will uh, uh be less likely to take to take drugs the law of some and all, you know the homeopathic remedies do are not do not belong to anyone they're not patented they are not about making a profit for a, for a company they are also part of nature they're just dilute versions of everything that appears in our universe but home- I, I i i have no problem making a living um Personally, and a number of my colleagues who, who who've gone gotten over the hump and who are who've gotten uh, gained experience, they're doing very very well. Um, but we have bigger fish to fry. I would like the consciousness of homeopathy to become to permeate as it once did in the time of Abraham Lincoln. Get people to know about it and and to realize that this is a far better kind of medicine, far healthier kind of medicine than uh, what we're being offered by the insurance companies and by the pharmaceutical industry.
0: I believe the uh, the foremost and please correct me if I'm mistaken here. The foremost uh, uh, medical school for homeopathy is the Hanuman. A school is that correct well Hahnemani- Or are, there more?
1: Hahnemani- are you talking about an actual school or the philosophic philosophy of, of homeopathy
0: i'm talking about an actual school what are the actual schools of homeopathy and that where somebody can go and get trained and coming out come out as a homeopath
1: oh wow there's not that many of them i mean i'm on the faculty in canada of the of the ontario college of, Medi- of homeopathic medicine um there are a couple yes. in this country there's a couple of, in uh there's a handful of them in this country. In India, there's 150 homeopathic medical schools. Um, is that basically, right? Basically, you, you would get a, a, a ground. You can go to the British Institute of Homeopathy, which is in New Jersey. Um, I have to think about um, some of the names. You can, you can probably Google them. A lot of them are now are... Uh,
0: Google. Are, are, yeah, people can Google it. Yeah. But uh, it's but an the impressive British school building. in New Jersey.
1: Yeah. Um, but the Ontario College has a good program. Um, there, there are a few of them. But basically, you get a grounding, and then you you become an apprentice is the best kind of way uh, you sit in on, on someone 's cases and then you the gold standard for certification is through the uh, Council for homeopathic certification the uh, that's the CHC The silver standard would be um, the North American uh, Society of Homeopathy, which does not uh, offer any, need, require an exam, but the standards are still pretty high. But the, the CHC standard will require you to get some kind of a grounding somewhere and uh, take many, many cases and uh, submit them and take an examination. And there's a number of ways of doing that. But I think now the, the, the uh, standard is that you do have to go to, to a, a formal, formal program of that. I'm sorry, I don't have it at the top of my, of my uh, head, the names I of understood. all these tools. Uh, I mentioned the one that I'm on the faculty of in Canada, but they 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 do exist in various places. There are a few in New York, there are a number in California, in um, New Mexico also has has uh, homeopathic colleges. The other thing about it is, Richard, is that is that uh, the the way these, we, this leads me to discussion of the certification. It's a very fragmented profession. It, it doesn't have like it's not unified the way even Chinese medicine is in this country. So you have chiropractors who have their own homeopathic association. You have uh, physicians. The American Institute of Homeopathy um, has, its, has its own uh, certification program for, for, for physicians, uh, chiropractors, uh, naturopaths. You know, There are subspecialties specialties within these existing professions. So it's a little bit complicated. I, I practice under my acupuncture license, uh, though there's no formal co- uh, affiliation between acupuncture and, and homeopathy, even though they're both profoundly holistic and they share a, lo- share a lot in common. But homeopathy does not offer a license that, such as that acupuncture does at this
0: point. Do you still practice acupuncture? Uh, I keep my license up. Uh, I,
1: I, I find I don't really have that much time to do it because it requires, you know, seeing patients much more often than when I do homeopathy. And my, 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 my schedule is just so full, it's, I have to see my homeopathy clients.
0: What led you to leave New York and move to Boston? Oh, <laughs> uh,
1: the noise of the subway system. I couldn't take it. Also, uh, I had friends up here in Boston and I, I got um, made redundant by the New York City uh, public school system. I was teaching emotionally disturbed children. Uh, and then the bu- big budget crunch came and they took our jobs away. So I decided to collect unemployment in Boston rather than New York. And I, I guess I never left.
0: What, what, what high school did you go to in Queens? I went to Bayside High in Queens. I remember it. Yeah, I went to high school in I went to high school in Manhattan. Oh, okay. A long time ago, Stuyvesant High School. Oh, good for you. Um, Exam
1: School, right? yeah. very good school, yeah.
0: Yeah, it was, still is, by the way. It, so we'll take a pause for me to ask you and for you to consider the following question before we end the interview, and that is, what might we have missed that you would like the public? to take away with regard to homeopathy? If there's anything you'd like to cover that we missed and take your time on this, please.
1: Well, uh, boy, I could talk about that for hours, but I would have to say familiarity with a law of nature, the law of similars, the fact that like cures like, and the fact that um, what I pride myself on, and I'm not the only homeopath like this, it's great to be able to help people to cure them, but it's even better for people to understand the source of their illness that it's in a certain problem of life that it has its origins in a, in a dilemma or a trauma that has happened and once you uncover that you know and you rec- and you put your faith in the fact that overcoming that will make you healthy you do not become prone to the chief lore of, of conventional medicine which is that you must be subject to fear fear disease comes out of nowhere you have no control over it fear it fear fear uh, the next pandemic fear uh, uh, my God, you're gonna get a cold, or you're gonna get you're gonna get paralyzed. Fear, fear, fear. you're not gonna know why it happened. The opposite of that is actually true. We have an ability to through interpreting our symptoms, advanced placement common sense as far as I'm concerned, but I've been doing homeopathy a long, long time, to um to investigate what's going on with this called spiritual forensics. And when you know the source of what's going on with yourself, you actually can be you're subject to the possibility of a great cure. So here's an adage. I would, This is my shorthand adage. Acute illness detoxifies. That's how we stay healthy. Acute illness has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It means our vital force has identified a, to- a, a, a pathogen or an emotional trauma, mobilized against it, and fought it off. That's good. That goes against the prevailing paradigm that acute illness is something totally to fear. It can be terrible. It can destroy you. And the converse of that, chronic illness, that's the problem we have, um, chronic illness informs; it tells us of the lingering effects, the hangover of that particular trauma that has that has taken us over. And in con- the conventional world, that's it's so, because it's so economically useful. Um, that's normalized. Oh, I'm okay. I have asthma. I take my uh, my asthma medication on a regular basis. I'm on my Abilify. I'm on my on my uh, SSRI for depression. Watch me go. I can go. You know, I'm on this stuff. That's horrible as far as I'm concerned. If you take that away, the problem simply remains except a lot of money is made from it. So I'd like people to get the idea that their fear is interfering with their health. And if you want to live without fear, or far less of it, you look into the homeopathic standpoint. You know, this is just advanced placement common sense. You're not only going to get better, but you're going to know why you get sick. And you're going to be on the lookout for the kinds of things that do make you sick from the realm of, of of fear. That is promoted for economic reasons, what you described before as uh the, um what did you say? <laughs> The you had a great economic term for it the uh, annuity. <laughs> In, oh,
0: oh, the, oh, oh, the annuity for the, the annuity, for the pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, yeah, we don't need that annuity. So, Jerry, last question of the day: Are vaccines such as the COVID vaccine are they basically homeopathic remedies?
1: No, afraid not. The are early ones, the very the, first ones, were uh, the, va- the word "vax" comes from cow, and the idea of cowpox was the was the first vac- vaccine a genuine one or an inoculation and the, you you it was purely homeop- homeopathic because you got like this pro- proxy disease cowpox which was similar enough to smallpox that you could go through that and then be protected from getting cowpox it was very it was uh it was very clear and it was it worked the modern vaccines of course this these covid vaccines are not vaccines at all there's something completely different but I mean, the, uh, if, but the other vaccines that are traditional, they contain adjutants, they contain aluminum and, and mercury and antibiotics. And there's a really a limit to how much a child can take. I don't know why, that's, why that capacity is not looked at, why that's ignored. It's terrifying to me. No, the, the home, home, I, I thought the early.
0: That's what I thought. I thought I'd remembered reading that homeopaths uh, 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 invented the vaccine because you were given a little bit of the something, which the body then created antigens against, and therefore you got protected.
1: Right. And uh, there is a public health version of homeopathy. But the big difference between vaccines and homeopathy, the two very major differences. One, you get a lot more of the substance in the vaccine. And it's uh, the other is that it's one size fits all. You don't look into the the, the individuality of the person. Um, as I as uh, I said many many times, I will give like to cure like, counting on this paradoxical effect. Um, but it, I can count on it because I've done my job. I've, I've identified the substance so perfectly that it's like a key going into a keyhole. It has to fit absolutely exactly. You know, a key is a wonderful thing. This tiny, tiny little thing, I liken it to a homeopathic remedy. It'll get you into a uh, giant mansion. You say, oh my God, this is a great thing, this key. This is fantastic. I'm going to use it in all the mansions down the street. Well, it won't work. If you want something that works in all the mansions down the street and you want to get into them, you need something crude like a battering ram. And then a lot of collateral damage comes with that. The little tiny key is what you want. That's the homeopathic remedy. And our vital force is like a keyhole. It welcomes the key. It, is, it desires it. And the remedy is like a permission slip. It allows the vital force to deal with something that it has thought it could never deal with. Um, it's like this little key getting you into a mansion. It, it releases a reaction in you that actually wants very, very badly to happen. If you allow it to, if you re-engage with the trauma that the remedy represents.
0: And sometimes... If the key fits in the ignition just right and you turn it on, the car starts and you get to go along your path of life. Uh, you're being called right now, so I think it's a great place to end the interview. Everybody, this is Jerry Cantor's book. you want to take a good look at it, if not read it carefully. And I thank you, Jerry Cantor, for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health and Politics. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast please listen in again next week when we're going to have another exciting and educational interview until then this is dr richard lewis miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life liberty and the pursuit of happiness
1: thank you so much richard what a pleasure being here on your show